The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It has been said that we are but one generation away from forgetting our history. Welcome to American Heroes Network, where we serve our American tradition with Gary Ray. In our program, you will hear firsthand the personal accounts of heroes whose unselfish actions have contributed to the traditions and values that represent the soul of America. You'll also hear from our partners and affiliations presenting news events and ways that our veterans and their families can rebuild their lives. Now, here is Gary Ray. Today is August 4th, 2015. Good morning and welcome to the American Heroes Network. My co-host today is Lieutenant Colonel Bill Forbes, U.S. Army retired, former Deputy Secretary for the Maryland Department of Veterans Affairs, also past Department Commander for the DAV, the State of Maryland. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you, Gary, and it's always great to be with you. All right. If you remember uh, uh, last week, uh, we did have a really good show. It was actually a repeat. We had a lot of requests for this, and it was with the Warrior Angel Foundation. Andrew Marr, the president and CEO, has suffered multiple TBI serving as an explosive breacher and being in and around countless explosions on numerous deployments. His trials and tribulations have been a true awakening to what life is like with a brain injury. Joining Andrew uh, during that interview was Dr. Mark Gordon. He's the owner and medical director for the Millennium TBI Network located in Encino, California. Dr. Gordon has training programs for physicians interested in learning about traumatic brain injury, PTSD, and treating the underlying cause of superficial symptoms. This is a show you really need to listen to. You'll find it on demand on the computer or any mobile device on the AmericanHeroesNetwork.com. I know we have a lot of information to cover today, uh, this morning, uh, Bill, and why don't you go ahead and introduce our first guest. It's an honor, Gary, to introduce author Earl Dusty Trimmer, who was a combat infantryman in the Vietnam War, turned a veterans advocate and veterans strike back LLC. Dusty is the author of two books, Condemned Property and the just release Payback Time. In both books, Dusty elevates awareness of the Vietnam War veterans wounded in action, killed in action, missing in action. He uncovers the plight of a number of those veterans still living and those who have lost their battles to serve after coming home, as well as those war veterans struggling to live another day. Written from the heart and soul, Dusty relives many of his experiences in the Vietnam War and takes a raw look at the war and its war veterans, their abandonment by our government, who is to blame and how to fix it. Welcome aboard, Dusty. Welcome, Dusty. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. All right. All right. Dusty, uh, I know this is a half hour just isn't enough time to get everything into it, but um, uh, we're going to try to get everything possible that we can. Okay. Now, as far as the U.S. Department of uh, Veterans Affairs is charged with the responsibility of caring for our heroes who have served the nation in two major areas, the health care and benefits. During this administration, two secretaries, Saseki and Bob McDonald, have led the VA. How would you assess the VA's leadership and the care of our veterans today? Today, it's getting better. Uh, my my relationship is is love hate love. Uh, not going back too far, where more more of the hate took place. Uh, I, I'm a strong believer that Secretary Bob, which he refers to, likes to be called, and I actually have a chapter in my second book, Payback Time, about Secretary Bob and a scorecard on his performance, if you will. Uh, and I rate him pretty good. Uh, I have constant discussions with my buddies, my, my vets, my, war, my Vietnam vets, and, and, and all my associates about that performance. Uh, he gets a lot of, um, I think, unfair media. Um, I read in between the lines the things that he has attempted, uh, and he's succeeded in doing as well. I think he is absolutely what we need. Um, and I'm optimistic that he's, you know, if he stays, if they keep him going forward, we're going to have a better system. I believe he is the man for the job. Um, not, he's not a Vietnam veteran, but he has his training. He has his Ranger badge. He's been through the, the ropes along those lines. And of course, uh, his success in running Procter and Gamble, I believe it was, is, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, he wanted this job, so he wanted us, and that means a lot to me and a lot of my buddies. Um, I'm having good experiences uh, today with VA, with my health care people for the most part. Um, in fact, one of the VA centers that I go to, I refer to them as the cheers bar because everybody knows your name. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. Every time we walk in, I, hi, Judith, hi, Mr. Trimmer, you know, hi, Tina, hi. And, and, and all of us feel that all way right. about this um, little regional VA out here in Ravenna, Ohio. I had to get them a plug. But I go to Cleveland. I go to Parma. I've gone to Youngstown. I've gone to Brexville. I've had good. I've had bad. Uh, and I mean I've had bad, uh, near life-threatening situations. Um, but they've also pulled me out. I've had a, uh, a somewhat extended hospital experience after my stroke in, in the med, VA medical downtown. And they, the service there, the care was just magnificent. Uh, I've been in a hospital before, and uh, it was by far as good as any medical treatment that I've ever had in my life. And that was not too long ago, two years ago. Uh, on the benefit side, um, I'm receiving benefits. It's been a struggle. It's been a battle. Uh, I still haven't, I'm still not where I think I should be, as many veterans aren't, but I'm willing to wage 
the war, if you if you will, the battle. I'm willing to to do it the right way by writing letters and more letters and more letters and uh, doing what what you have to do. It's it, it's a dogfight. Uh, they have a tough job. I understand that. They're faced with a lot of old problems and um, roadblocks, if you will, that a lot of my buddies probably don't understand. Uh, nor do they want to. They just we want to get take care of ourselves. But uh, I know the back load is frustrating. When I first started writing condemned property, I read where of all the pending cases, uh, the backlog, 35% of them were Vietnam veterans, and I've con- I've confirmed that from sources a couple of times. Uh, and you know that that's what's happened to us. Since we've come home, um, that should be embarrassing to the VA. Should be embarrassing to our country. Uh, but th- these guys and gals, we're still almost being treated like stepchildren um, by the VA in many ways. Uh, they're taken care of, and rightfully so. We we don't deprive our brothers and sisters coming home, uh, but they're taking care of. It seems like the present-day veterans in quicker fashion than we are, have been taken care of. Uh, You know, in our attitude, the way we look at it, we line up the halls at the airports when they come home, since the Persian Gulf War, the early wars. Uh, The airports are always lined up with Vietnam veterans welcoming welcoming our brothers and sisters home. Uh, And and, and that's that's a well-known fact. In fact, at a, a recent uh, event, it was Key Bank had a uh, military tribute at their corporate headquarters in Cleveland around Memorial Day. And I had the pleasure and the honor of speaking there, uh, along with Susan Fuhrer, who is the CEO of the Cleveland Wade Park VA and the, the new Cleveland Fisher Foundation branch. And she, too, made many, many, many comments how she would notice in the hallways and such and in the rooms that uh, it seemed to be it was always a Vietnam veteran helping another veteran or talking to another Vietnam, another veteran of some sort, consoling them uh, or such. And uh, that makes me feel great. And, you know, it's I tell those stories in, in payback time uh, at great length. Um, she gave me a open invitation to come up to her office and visit any time I come down to Cleveland VA, and I, I will take her up on that. Uh, that, that was uh, an absolute delight that day to uh, share the platform, so to speak, uh, with her. And I had brought uh, oh, half a dozen of Vietnam veteran buddies with me. Uh, they were the only people in the audience uh, that I knew. Uh, it was a full house at Key Bank. Um, and they, they gave Susan and I a, a standing O uh, that I have never experienced that before. So that was pretty emotional for me. Um, and fortunately, I've had a couple of talks since, and they, including one at the, the Traveling Wall of Freedom, which visited Ohio over the 4th of July. And I had an opportunity to, to speak there, too. And, uh, you know, not, not necessarily about my books, but about my brothers, about my sisters, where we've been, the war we fought, and, you know, about the enemy that we fought 
and what we were up against and what we faced when we came back and what a lot of us are facing right now. Uh, I hate I hate to say it, but we're almost an endangered species, Vietnam right. veterans, uh, especially combat Vietnam veterans. And I don't say that to take away from anyone who served in Vietnam. Vietnam was a battlefield from coast, from Cambodia to the South China Seas, from the DMZ to the Delta. It was a battlefield, no matter where you were stationed. But I... I don't know the the exact and precise number of how many of us are left living, but various estimates uh, are shocking. Uh, A million, a million five, a million three, I don't know. It seems like you put them all together, uh, about a million of us have died since coming home from the war. Uh, And I I can't live with that. Um, So I started writing my book, but mainly because I was also living the trials and tribulations of my own platoon brothers as they were dying and falling from Agent Orange and PTSD-caused problems uh, and delays uh, from, from VA, uh, quite, quite, quite simply. I had one uh, brother who died from his diabetes in Texas. And uh, I visited him often, Sergeant Curtis Daniels, and I'm in constant touch with his wife, Patsy, and the family. And it, this is several years ago, and the VA had had him rated 40% disability, and he was full-blown. I mean, he was getting, uh, he had one leg or one foot that was already gone, and the other one was on, on hold for a surgery, and he was going in for uh, the mega-treatments. Uh, three times a week. Uh, when we found out that he was only on 40%, uh, several of us banded together and uh, started making some contacts and stuff. And uh, fortunately, VA Houston turned that around and uh, elevated him to the 100% that uh, he should have been at for some while. So, you know, some, some things like this have happened. Uh, I've, I've gone to many funerals with my platoon brothers and new brothers from the Vietnam War that I've met because of my book, uh, and I go to as many funerals as I possibly can, not that I want to, uh, All right. obviously. All right. Well, we're going to take a break, and we can continue on when we come back with your story. Uh, I just want to make sure that uh, everybody understands that this is brought to you by First Class Merchant Services. That's one of our main sponsors. Also, check out our sponsor page to see businesses that support our veteran communities. Just be sure to support them back. And just to mention, I do have a good friend this morning. Her name's Cheryl. She's going through surgery as we speak. Just wanted to say we're all here to support you, sweetie. Everything is going to be fine. And along with that, a special thanks to Bobby, a Vietnam veteran. Again, that's helping vets here. Uh, A Vietnam veteran for his unselfish acts and his dedication for being Cheryl's good friend and caregiver. Thanks, Bobby. You're one hell of a Marine, and we all salute you, sir. You're listening to the American Heroes Network Radio, powered by Voice America on a variety channel, and we'll be right back. Find 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. For those corporations or organizations who wish to support our veterans, sponsoring and promotion on the American Heroes Network has never been easier or smarter as the only network focused to specifically reach the military and veteran population globally. For more information, email us at sponsorinfo at americanheroesnetwork.com. By providing a unique blend of information and advocacy, we are helping our American heroes and their families to heal, successfully transition into civilian life, and to thrive in their communities. This generation will not be forgotten. Today's military are our sons and daughters. Listen live to the American Heroes Network, the worldwide voice for our military families and veterans, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. All shows are archived on American Heroes network.com and syndicated on iTunes. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into American Heroes Network. If you want to find out more about us or to contact us with questions or comments about the show, please send an email to American Heroes Network at gmail.com. That's American Heroes Network at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. We're here with our guest, author Dusty Trimmer. And, uh, Bill, you had a question. Well, I'd right. uh, I'd like to give a, a, a opening to a follow-up to uh, what Dusty was giving us. Dusty, as you know, about two weeks ago, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the, uh, the Vietnam War ending. It was a long war, as you have identified it. Uh, you know, we returned home. Uh, personally, I returned in... Uh, uh, September of uh, 1968, after going over in October of 67, returning from combat in the battlefield to home and community. And we didn't integrate real well in that particular period of time. Uh, the, I think the greatest void in our uh, uh, veteran community today is a lack of information. I mean, some of the things that we came back with, depression, anxiety, you name them, you know what they are. Today, of about 22.5 million veterans, we are the largest segment of that, which is about 63%. And I know you are in contact with some of your serving comrades. How do you think that they are able to navigate this bureaucracy and getting the help with their concerns of some of the things that you ended with, it it seems to me in a lot of cases it's a very frustrating experience for us veterans in general, but Vietnam veterans in particular. Right, right, right. Uh, Yes. Uh, The coming home uh, I think we, a lot of us uh, were like a 105 howitzer. We just scattered in every direction. 
I know I didn't see or nor was I in touch with any of my platoon members uh, since we left until 1988 when a couple of guys and their wives got together out in Boston, New Jersey, and uh, just did a fantastic job through the Army Locator Service and found, um, I think, eight or nine of us that were left to the original 27 from our platoon. Um, our platoon was uh, Bravo, Bravo 3rd and 22nd. We were actually the replacements for Oliver Stone's unit in his battle of Sui Trey in the movie Platoon, he was de- actually depicting that, that battle, but we were the replacements. And uh, that platoon was pretty much wiped out, and our platoon was pretty much 100% casualties, killed or wounded as well. So these guys, uh, Smokey Ryan, who's passed away since from uh, PTSD, and John, Baby Son, Shorty, Martino, and their wives, put this reunion together, 20-year reunion, and found the eight or nine of us originals. And they found uh, about seven or eight replacements, uh, which there were a lot of. It was ongoing. So we had like 15 participants who served with Bravo Company, 1st Platoon, 3rd and 22nd, 25th Infantry, and they found Major General, retired Major General Flint, who was our brigade commander, colonel over there, who, uh, by the way, was was famously in, endured. Uh, two of us, uh, Haywood Taylor and myself, remember him distinctly in one of those little bubble choppers as we were in a firefight one day, and uh, hey, Colonel Flint's in that bubble chopper, and he's throwing out hand grenades. <laughs> and you could you could shoot down those bubble choppers with a pellet gun for crying out loud. So I mean he was the real deal, and uh, several of us are are with him. He's in Florida and uh, still hanging in there. Some health problems, but of course he's in his well into his eighties. Uh, but the, the reunion came off, and it was an experience that just could not cannot be explained or put in words, uh, but saying goodbye again what was traumatic for all of us. And it's been very difficult to try to get together again for fear of that emotional experience. So I, I visit them on a one-to-one basis where, when and where I can, as I was with Curtis Daniels in Texas, who passed away from his diabetes. And uh, I mean, he was on dialysis all the time. He was, he was a mess. And uh, spent the time with the family at the funeral. I always wear my dress greens when I go to a funeral. I want to honor them. I want to honor their family. Uh, boy, if I got away from something, tell me. Uh, I, I've talked about the coming home. The coming, the coming home, of course, when we shut off in every direction. My personal coming home actually wasn't bad. I... Uh, got the, the usual stairs at the airport, and uh, I, I didn't think too much of it. I had, I had kept my uniform on, and we had been advised to remove our uniforms because of the reception guys were getting back home, and uh, I paid no attention to that, as most of my buddies didn't. So I was going to surprise Mom and Dad. I got a five-day early out. So I was just going to show up on the doorstep. They weren't expecting me for five days. 
And I arrived in Cleveland in uh, late February or early March, 69. It was a snowstorm. I had uh, light dress greens, summer dress greens, an 80-pound duffel bag. I uh, took the rapid transit from uh, Cleveland Hopkins Airport downtown to Cleveland Terminal Tower. From there, I took the Shaker Rapid Transit, which would take me out to the suburbs to the end of that line, Van Aken, where I would stand on the corner and hitchhike for the next two and a half hours in a snowstorm. Mm. And all of a sudden, this big black Cadillac pulls up, stops, opens the door. <laughs> hey, boy, you need a ride? <laughs> covered with yeah, covered with snow, and, yeah, I have a like, paper thin uniform on, and you know, obviously I'm very darkly tanned and uh, a lot more wrinkled than when I went over to Vietnam. Yeah, I said, "Sure, guys, hop in," and we took a little ride, and uh, then one of them said to me, uh, "Hey, when's the last time you had a steak dinner?" I said, Are "You kidding?" Uh, uh, well, it's been a while. <laughs> and he says, well, how about lobster? Oh, I can't remember having lobster in a longer while. So they asked me where I lived, and it was uh, 10 or 12, 15 miles from uh, their town. And uh, they took me to a restaurant in Maple Heights, Ohio, called the Post and Paddock, and they bought me a steak and lobster dinner. And they asked me, if, uh, well, do you want to have a beer? I says, yeah, sure. And then one of them said, well, have you ever had scotch? I said, well, actually, no, I haven't. He says, well, I'm going to order you a Chevis Regal scotch, and we're going to celebrate your, your coming home. And so that was my first touch, taste with, with scotch. And it was, it was quite a, an event, and uh, we proceeded. They, they took me to Twinsburg, Ohio, and I asked to be dropped off at the end of my street, and it was a couple-mile walk. Uh, to my mom's house, I wanted to walk down my street, and uh, I, I got there, and uh, nobody was home yet. So when they came home, it was a, a complete surprise, and of course, everybody went ballistic, and uh, it wasn't a bad coming home for me. It had uh, good and the bad, but it was mostly uphill after that. All right. That was about it. Everything right. just like a bury it, get over it, troop. Oh, right. you you were in Vietnam, really? Didn't know you were there. Uh, how <laughs> was it? You know all those things. And so I went through twenty years of uh, blocking Vietnam out of my my life, out of my mind. So I thought until that reunion in '88, uh, it kind of awakened us the bond that we have and. Uh, I mean, we have guys like Haywood Taylor, uh, who belonged to the Blackstone Rangers, which was a very racial, anti-Caucasian gang of the 60s. And he was a Black Panther. And he still lives in Southside Chicago, where I visit him. And uh, he's come out to visit me several times. Uh, we still get on the phone, the phone and talk, and uh, we still break down. And, you know, we said, well, I'll never forget you, man. I'll never forget you. I'll never forget what you did. I'll never forget what you did. And we, and we haven't. I mean, it is amazing 
Uh, I've had some partial memory damage uh, from my stroke, but I can remember everything that happened in Vietnam, it seems. Um, I can remember more of what happened in that year than I can probably remember what happened all of the 1970s combined, which became a blur for me as I ran away from Vietnam and ran away from life and relationships. Well, Dusty, you see what I meant at the beginning when I mentioned a half hour just is not enough time? Yep. Uh, We're there already. And uh, what I'd like to do is, what would you like to share with our listeners in closing before you leave? Well, um, I am uh, feeling better about the way America feels about us, Vietnam veterans. And I'm ecstatic. We all are. All of us Vietnam veterans are happy and pleased that today's veterans are not being treated the way we were. Uh, It was a travesty. And uh, and I think Vietnam veterans have have helped lead the way uh, for that, uh, whether by choice or not. But... Uh, and even today, and then today's veterans, I think, have done a tremendous job in uh, getting people to honor us. And, of course, a lot of them are, are our sons and nephews and, and stuff. And mm-hmm. and so many of, of their fathers and uncles are gone. I mean, it, it's been stated that Vietnam veterans, on a percentage basis, are, have actually died at a faster rate than... Our World War II fathers and uncles, percentage-wise. Right. So uh, I, I'm 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 happy with the way America is treating us and, and my brothers, but there's still so many of them that are in a closet, so to speak, and still so many of them that have given up and need to be resurrected or given new hope, more hope. That's true. And sure, welcome home and thank you for your service helps, but a good old-fashioned hug would help a lot better, and that's all we wanted when we came home was a good old-fashioned hug. That's right. Well, again, we appreciate it, Dusty. Uh, Again, what we'd like to do is maybe have you on the show in the near future again with a little more time, if that's okay with you. Oh, I would love to. Okay, great, great. I appreciate uh, the time that you've given us uh, for your story, and and, uh, thank you, and and, uh, we'll see you next time you're on. All right. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Have a great right. day. Thank, thank you. Take care, Dusty. Now, don't forget Bye. to visit the American Heroes Network Radio Archived Library for our radio shows. We have a ton of radio shows now. We have created a veterans resource that is truly making a difference through our weekly live shows. All our shows are archived on demand for easy access to resources and events anytime, anywhere, and on any mobile device. When we come back, we'll be talking with Dan Gordon, author of 15 Hollywood Features. You're listening to the American Heroes Network Radio, powered by Voice America and Variety Channel, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. For those corporations or organizations who wish to support our veterans, sponsoring and promotion on the American Heroes Network has never been easier or smarter. As the only network focused to specifically reach the military and veteran population globally. For more information, email us at sponsorinfo at AmericanHeroesNetwork.com. 
by providing a unique blend of information and advocacy. We are helping our American heroes and their families to heal, successfully transition into civilian life, and to thrive in their communities. This generation will not be forgotten. Today's military are our sons and daughters. Listen live to the American Heroes Network, the worldwide voice for our military families and veterans, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. All shows are archived on AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and syndicated on iTunes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into American Heroes Network. If you want to find out more about us or to contact us with questions or comments about the show, please send an email to American Heroes Network at gmail.com. That's American Heroes Network at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. We're here with a guest, Dan Gordon. He's an author of 15 Hollywood features, including Hurricane with Denzel Washington, Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner, Murder in the First with uh, Kevin Bacon, The Assignment with Ben Kensley. Jeez, the list goes on, doesn't it? But today, we're going to be talking about The Day of the Dead. That's his new book. Uh, Gonza, and Dan's, uh, uh, Gonza is Dan's seventh published novel and is a terrifying look into the war of today, ripped from the today's headlines and based on uh, Gordon's 30 years. You have 30 years in the um, uh, Israeli, Israeli uh, military? Actually, 42 years, yeah. 42 years, all right. Yeah. All right. And also uh, six Middle East uh, conflicts, and yes, uh, you have this book following you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Um, well, first, uh, I'd like to say to the, to the Vietnam vet who, uh, who was just on, um, I was born in the United States. I was raised in Israel when I was of uh, draft age. Uh, I, I lived in, uh, in Israel and, and uh, went into the Israeli army uh, in 1973, and um, uh, we feel such kinship for our American brothers in arms. And, um, it, you know, I'm, I'm of the same generation of, of that guy, and I, our experiences are so different as Israeli soldiers. Um, people fight to give us rides. I mean, cars literally swerve off the road to pick up a hitchhiking hiking soldier. If you're in a restaurant during wartime, um, you, you can't pick up a bill. And, and, and the guy who buys the, buys the dinner for you will never tell you who he is. The waiter will just say, someone's just picked up the bill, don't worry about it. And I, I just want to put my arms around all the Vietnam vets of my generation, uh, from uh, all the veterans of uh, the Israel Defense Forces. Um, we love you guys. You're our brothers in arms. <clears throat> and um, we know what you go through. We train with you guys a lot uh, with the American Army. And um, um, we just love you. So um, just, just a shout-out to, uh, to all my brothers in, uh, and sisters in uh, the American Armed Forces. All right. Thank you. Um, now Day of the Dead is uh, Day of the Dead Book One Gaza uh-huh. is um, has its origins in uh, my experiences in uh, last summer's uh, Hamas Israel war, which I called the uh, terrorist tunnel war. Um, 
I served uh, in that war uh, the full length of it and then some. Uh, I think and during the last year I've done 162 days of reserves, which is uh, for an Israeli reservist, we usually only do one month a year. Um, and uh, that's been a long one because as a result of, uh, uh, of that uh, conflict. Um, it ushered in the most frightening uh, development that I've seen in 42 years as a soldier. Um, when I say as a soldier, I'm a reservist. I don't do it, you know, full time. I'm a, I'm a weekend warrior and, and, and obviously called up during times of war. And that was the advent of these terrorist tunnel attacks. If you can imagine a lawn in a suburban community uh, opening up and like a scene out of uh, Night of the Living Dead, zombies coming up out of their graves, except it's not zombies coming up out of their graves. It's terrorists coming up literally on your front lawn from a tunnel that they dug from Gaza into your little suburban community on the border there. Each of them armed with two RPGs, AK-47s, grenades, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and most frightening of all, tranquilizer shots and plastic handcuffs, because what their intent was was to kill and maim as many people as possible, but to kidnap as many women and children as possible and drag them back through the tunnels into Gaza uh, as, as hostages. Um, it was a traumatic and terrifying event because when you dig this kind of a tunnel, you're a, it's an excellent weapon for a technologically inferior force against a technologically superior force because it neutralizes all your surveillance capabilities. You may have all the satellite, drone, boots on the ground, patrols, whatever you can think of, um, surveillance of a border area. But if you start the tunnel inside of a mosque or school inside of Gaza, or even uh, a farmhouse and next to it there's supposedly a greenhouse, but that's where you're storing the dirt that you take out of the tunnel. You're impervious to all of that uh, uh, activity from any of your surveillance. And so they can just dig that tunnel, and these tunnels stretch for miles. And some of them came up in kindergartens, some of them came up in community centers, one came up in a dining hall of a uh, agricultural community where there would have been something like 800 people taking their meal. Uh, anybody who's been in the military can imagine what 12 guys, each of them with two RPGs, AKs, and grenades can do in a closed room when, when uh, they're facing unarmed people. And um, so they tried six of these attacks. All six of those attacks were foiled. Uh, because of the uh, grace of a compassionate God, I absolutely believe that, and also the skill and the bravery and the professionalism of the men and women of the Israel Defense Forces, numbers of whom lost their lives putting themselves between the terrorists and, 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 and our fellow civilians, our, a lot of times family members and neighbors. Um, you know, Israeli soldiers drive to the front. We don't get on airplanes. We're not in Afghanistan. Uh, every fought front I've ever fought on, and I've fought on every front in the Israeli, you know, borders for 42 years, uh, I could drive to. I could take a bus to. Most of them were within two hours of where I lived. 
um, for the people who live along the border with Gaza, and there are a lot of little agricultural communities there, um, uh, they live within a thousand meters of the border. So they're not just in rocket range, they're in mortar range. Uh, a lot of them are in rifle range. Uh, some of them are in, you know, spitting range. Um, those folks have lived for the last uh, 14 years never knowing a day of peace. You've got little four-year-old girls there who have, have as much experience dodging rockets and mortars as the most hardcore guy you've got on his fourth deployment in Afghanistan. And you can imagine the trauma that those kids live through and, and the PTSD that they have. So um, after I came home from the war, my agent said, well, you know, these tunnels are, that's a movie, man. That's a big Tom Clancy movie. Uh, you got to do something with that. And I said, well, you know, both of us know that there's not an American studio in, uh, in the country that's going to make a movie with the Israeli soldiers as the good guys. We're the bad guys. No, we're politically incorrect. No one's going to, uh, you know, make a movie about us where we, we are the heroes. It's got to be an American story. He said, yeah, right, exactly. I said, well, now how the heck do I change, you know, the Gaza border with Israel to an American story. And he said, you will note, I am the agent. You are the writer. That is not my problem. <laughs> Look, that, is, that is your problem. You come up with the answer to that, and I will sell it. And so I began to think about it. And suddenly it dawned on me that the country that was most vulnerable to those kind of attacks is not Israel. Um, even though you can't see them while they're in the tunnel, the minute they pop their ugly heads out of those tunnels, we have the best surveillance in the world. We have dirigibles up there. We have Heron drones, you know, flying caps over that border 24-7. We've got F-15s. We've got remote control vehicles. We have our most elite combat soldiers uh, equivalent of, you know, uh, American Rangers or Special Forces patrolling that borders, uh, border in, in uh, patrols that are no more than 1,000 meters apart, 24-7. Um, an ant can't move across that border without us seeing it. We have, uh, I'm not revealing any military secrets here, we have all-girl observation uh, units that watch the TV monitors from, from the various cameras that we have along the border. And there are no boys allowed in those units because boys don't have the same powers of concentration that girls do. They think about sex. And girls can actually look at a monitor and, and keep their mind on the job for eight hours. We're probably the only army in the world that doesn't disqualify people with autism. In fact, we search out people with Asperger's syndrome, and they're in a special intelligence unit which analyzes um, aerial photographs because they can see details that are out of place that you and I w would miss. They can find Waldo, you know. So our surveillance is spectacular. That's number one. Number two, we have a 24-hour combat air patrol over that border with every aerial asset that we have, which includes, you know, drones armed with Hellfire missiles, Apache attack helicopters, uh, and F-15s constantly flying over that border. We can respond within 30 seconds to, you know, anybody that pops their head up. And then finally, as I said, we have our most elite troops uh, patrolling that border, and they can probably get to any incident within, I would say, under two minutes. 
um, and, and they can respond properly. Um, the United States has none of those things along our border with Mexico. And yes. I suddenly began to realize that ISIS, which, you know, I, I have been in counterterrorism units, and I've been studying that subject for four decades. And ISIS isn't like your, your grandfather's al-Qaeda. ISIS has proclaimed itself the caliphate, and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who's their leader, has pro- proclaimed himself the caliph. Well, the caliph is the stand-in for the prophet Muhammad. Once Muhammad died, the caliph takes uh, the place on earth, sort of like the pope. He's the deputy. And you can't be the caliph, and you can't have the caliphate unless you strike at the heart of the great Satan, which is America, in a way that will dwarf 9-11. It's like a heavyweight boxer who won't defend his title. And... So I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, with everything that I own or will ever have, that ISIS today is probably where al-Qaeda was in 1999 in terms of planning a mass casualty attack against the United States. All these lone wolf attacks are sleight of hand that are meant, you know, they're the left jab that's meant to take your eye off the right hook that's going to put you on your keister. And like, and they are a very good military, and they are very bright young staff officers who are offering up their plans, and there are senior staff officers who are evaluating them and deciding which one they're going to put into effect. And I believe that the juiciest target they have um, is they had a big presence in Gaza during during last summer's war. They were watching Hamas and why it failed, and why it could succeed against the United States. And they they have already begun adopting tunnel warfare in all of their fronts. Uh, They're doing it along the Turkish border. They're doing it against the uh, Syrian uh, forces. They're doing it against uh, competitive uh, militias uh, in Iraq. So they, they have already caught on to the notion of tunnel warfare. They have an easier job against the United States than they have in the Middle East. They don't have to dig any tunnel at all in order to strike at one of our major metropolitan cities because those tunnels exist. Those are drug smuggling tunnels that that, uh, uh, have been dug by the Mexican cartels. And if you doubt their efficacy, ask uh, uh, El Chapo, who used one of them to escape from a maximum security prison, uh, in a tunnel that had uh, electricity, air conditioning, ventilation system, phone system, railroad tracks, and a motorcycle. Um, and that tunnel was dug inside of a year, uh, and it stretched a mile and a half. Uh, we've found tunnels inside, and I've, in researching this book, talked to current and former DEA, current and former FBI, current and former Border Patrol uh, current and former special forces guys, uh, as well as my Israeli counterparts, um, we've found tunnels already uh, inside of San Diego, in El Paso, um, along the American side of the U.S.-Mexican border that are not Mexican construction. You can tell the difference in a heartbeat. They look exactly like a Hamas or, or Hezbollah tunnel. Um, and so... Uh, ISIS doesn't have to dig any tunnel. It needs to rent one 
from one of the cartels. ISIS has the richest terrorist organization in the history of the world. They have billions with an S. So that's a language the cartels understand. If you think of uh, what's waiting for them, for example, in, Sa- in downtown San Diego, uh, ISIS's doctrine is to always hit two things. Number one, they want to hit the opposition's military in order to send a signal to the civilian population which says, you see, your military is powerless to protect you against us. That's a psychological thing they want to inflict on the civilian population. Number two, they want to kill and maim as many civilians as possible. Um, And number three, the reason they do those beheading videos is not just as a recruiting tool, and it's a good recruiting tool for every psychopath that's that's in the Islamic world and, and some who will convert to Islam just to be able to wear a black suit and cut people's heads off. It's the same appeal that the Nazis had. Um, the other reason they use those things is to instill fear in the enemy so that if they hear ISIS is in town, they, they give up immediately. It's like, oh my goodness, these guys are going to cut our heads off and burn us alive unless we do what they say. So if you look at that doctrine, if you look at what they did when they took Mosul and Ramadi and uh, what they recently did in Egypt, the way they begin an attack, and they're very, very good. And, you know, when you hear the president say they're the JV team and, you know, NBA jerseys, that's, that's just the dumbest-ass thing I ever heard in my life. You cannot have contempt for your enemy. You dare not. Only a, only a person who's never been in contact, combat would ever speak that way. If you have contempt for your enemy, you've just given them the biggest advantage in the world. You've, you've got to respect their abilities, and you've got to think they're actually smarter than they are in order to defeat them. Uh, and these guys are good. So the way they start an attack, they'll detonate a half a dozen to a dozen truck bombs. Uh, and they've actually taken American-captured MRAPs and turned those into the same kind of truck bombs that were used to take out the Marine barracks in 82 and killed 220-some-odd Marines in Beirut that took out the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia. Same kind of bomb that McVeigh used in Oklahoma City. Uh, which is ammonium nitrate and diesel fuel. It's fertilizer and diesel fuel. That's not exactly hard to come by. And they'll detonate half a dozen to a dozen of those to create total chaos. Each one of those will kill about 200 people, wound three to 500. So you detonate a dozen of those, do the math. You've got anywhere from, from two to 3,000 people dead immediately and another five or 6,000 wounded. So now your first responders respond to those scenes you have two choices. You can de- detonate secondary bombs that you've planted along the way and take out the first responders that way, or you can send in your ground forces via tunnels to the other side of town to take out your real objectives. So what are your real objectives in San Diego? Well, half the Pacific fleet is at anchor there, um, and they've already demonstrated their ability. They, they just about sank an Egyptian naval vessel uh, off the coast of Sinai. So they, they have branched out into that area and know how to do it. The other thing you've got is half of America's naval special warfare forces. All the uh, uh, even-numbered teams are in Virginia. The odd-numbered uh, SEAL teams are in Coronado Island. As we've just seen uh, in that horrible shooting of, of the uh, Marines uh, at the recruiting stations, American forces are not permitted to carry weapons on American installations which is the dumbest 
thing I've ever heard in my life. An Israeli soldier is never under any circumstances separated from his or her weapon. And the reason is the minute you don't have a weapon, you're no longer a soldier, you're a victim. And so if you take out 20 or 30 rent-a-cops or 20 or 30 shore patrol, you own Coronado Island, and you can just wreak havoc there. So you've got uh, half the American uh, fleet there. You've got our, our most elite uh, naval commandos who are there. And then if you think about civilian targets, you've got just everything you could ask for. It's, it's terrorist heaven. You've got SeaWorld. You've got the San Diego Zoo. Imagine a sports arena with 18,000 people watching a basketball game <clears throat> or an ice show or what have you. You give me 100 guys with RPGs uh, and machine guns and grenades, and, uh, and I'm not that good, but I guarantee you most of those 18,000 people will not make it out of that arena alive uh, unless I want to take them hostage. And then once you take them hostage, you, you will imagine ISIS will drag them back through those tunnels into Mexico, and they will execute them on on YouTube. They'll behead them, and they'll burn them alive, and they'll drown them like rats on YouTube. And and what will we do about it? Is there right. any circumstance that you can imagine where the United States would do an airstrike on northern Mexico or would send in ground troops into northern Mexico, even if they knew where a tunnel opening was? And, they were, and I'm talking about infiltrating 1,500 to 1,000 ISIS terrorists. Uh, in into San Diego, uh, or El Paso, or, or or Tucson, or any number of other cities along the uh, the uh, U.S. Mexico border. Um, even if we knew where the tunnel opening was and where the terrorist forces are, there is nothing anyone can say to me that would convince me that this administration would order a preemptive strike against terrorist forces in northern Mexico. We would send a stern letter to the Mexican government, and the Mexican government would read it and click their tongue because there are a lot of places in northern Mexico they don't control. Um, we know that Hezbollah has, has 5,000 terrorists in Central and South America, which have very close cooperation with the drug cartels. There's absolutely no reason to believe that ISIS hasn't already made close contact with the Mexican drug cartels. Uh, they right. speak the same language when it comes to money, when it comes to smuggling drugs and arms. Usually, uh, one of your you know, main problems is how do you smuggle in the weapons? You don't have to smuggle in any weapons. The weapons are already there. You just buy them from the cartels. You can get all the RPGs and, and uh, automatic weapons and grenades you want because the cartels use them all the time. So the book imagines, it starts off in Gaza, and it imagines that the Kurds have captured an ISIS terrorist who says there is a plot that's about to go down. And the president, whose name is Rafiq Mohammed Kabila, and I swear bears no resemblance to anyone living or dead, uh, is a purely fictional character, and that will be the story I tell to the day I die, um, is reluctant to take any action, and instead he appoints a group of experts to go and evaluate that intelligence. And that consists of a uh, beautiful, born-again, 35-year-old uh, uh, CIA agent with a sort of tortured past of her own 
uh, a 20-year veteran of the Navy SEAL yeah. teams, a DEA guy and an FBI guy, all of whom have their own PTSD backgrounds from their various experiences. And they hook up with an Israeli intelligence officer. Dan, and, yeah. Dan I'm, getting, I'm getting waves in the background here. Uh, we only have a, just a couple seconds left. And that half hour went really fast. In fact, I just looked on, <laughs> looked on the board here, wow. and it, it's already gone. So, uh, again, Dan, I want to uh, just say thank you for being on our show. I'd like to have you back uh, once the movie's out, and we can, we can go Love over that. Uh, it's, it's okay. Day of the Dead. Book One Gaza, and it's available on Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. And uh, people ought to get one copy and read it for themselves for enjoyment, and buy another one and send it to their congressman. Definitely, <laughs> we've got hellfire coming. All right, then once again, it was a pleasure having you on the show. If you missed any of our live shows, all our shows are archived on demand, 24/7, on the American Heroes Network Radio.com. And yes, you can hear all the archived shows right from your phone. And remember, the American Heroes Network Radio spotlights and promotes the best available information of interest to America's veterans and their families anytime, anywhere, and on any device. I'm your host, Gary Ray, signing off. And thanks for listening to the American Heroes Network Radio. Powered by Voice America on the Variety Channel, and we'll see you next week. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of American Heroes Network. Please join Gary Ray again next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week. You're the backbone.